Welcome to the One Mind Podcast from AboutMeditation.com. My name's Morgan Dix, and I'm your host. On One Mind, we explore different angles on meditation, mindfulness, and health. We interview experts and everyday practitioners to bring you the stories, the science, and the exploration that will help you understand why this ancient practice is more relevant and important today than ever before. Hi everyone, welcome to the show. I'm so glad you joined us. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule. So today is part two of my interview with good friend and longtime meditator, Ted Saad. Last week, in episode 25, Ted and I explored how meditation can help you tame your crazy mind. Today, Ted and I explore something called integral theory. Integral theory is like a map. Really, it's an inner map that charts human development and it helps you understand the human experience. Through mapping different perspectives, different stages of human development, and different states and stages of consciousness, It's a way of making sense of the complexity of our very human lives. So neither Ted nor I are experts on this topic, but Ted, he's really studied this theory in depth. And our goal is really just to give you a rough outline today so you get the basics of the theory. And then from there, we explore how it can help you shed new light on your meditation practice. So, I hope you enjoy this episode. Let's dive right in. Ted, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Morgan. Thank you for having me. Everyone, I am part of why I wanted to invite Ted onto the show today is to really share with us what integral theory is all about. And the, the progenitor, the creator of integral theory was or is Ken Wilber, the man that Ted was talking about earlier. And so, Ted, I'd love to ask you, what is integral theory in a, in a really simple way? Because, of course, we know it can become very complex, so we're going to try and talk about it as simply as possible. Can you tell us what is integral theory, but then also why does an understanding of integral theory potentially help us in integrating meditation into our lives? and integrating even more broadly just our spiritual life. So we could just start with the beginning because I know the beginning may take us the whole interview. We may not get to part two <laughs> or it may just well, get, it I'll, may just come you know, out. I'll try to be simple with integral theory because you're right, you can get into the weeds with integral theory. And I think when Ken Wilber was sort of coming up with this, and I'll call it a map because that's really what it is. It's, it's sort of a map, a map of reality in the sense that Ken was reading a lot of different thought leaders and philosophers from history and looked into a lot of different schools of ideas. And what was interesting is he he sort of intuited, he said, you know, everybody seems to have some truth in what they're saying. You know, nobody's 100% wrong. I mean, everybody has something that kind of makes sense. And there's got to be a way to orientate all these ideas into sort of a, a cohesive way of looking at reality. 
So Ken, you know, obviously he, he was well-versed in uh, Eastern philosophy and Western philosophy, and he figured, well, there's got to be a way to integrate, you know, these two areas of, you know, schools of thought. And he found a map to do that in the sense that he could bring that together. And the map really kind of fleshes out things in a way that we look at different perspectives. So perspectives are really everything, meaning that there's sort of like these three great perspectives, right? We have the perspective of, you know, our own perspective, the I perspective, subjective experience, you know, how mm. we relate to the world. Then, you know, when you get together with someone else, you're in a relationship or you're in a group, it's no longer just I, there's sort of a we perspective, right? So there's a relational perspective now that's being established between two people or more. And that yeah. would be the second perspective. And then there's a perspective around, objects you know like it and you know it could be the the the, the sensory and motor world nature uh science all these things are always kind of focused on measuring something that you can point to and that's important right so that's kind yeah. of more the western model and then you know to add to that it could be sort of a plural of that and that's looking at systems you know our political systems economic systems you know things of that nature so this is sort of the map that kind of takes in all these different perspectives. And to add to that, these perspectives aren't necessarily just flat, that these perspectives come from certain structures of consciousness. So these could be seen as stages and stages are really just the way we interpret reality. Um, you know, and we all go through different stages, you know, from the time that we're, you know, born to the time that we become an adult, you know, and when we're a child, we, we sort of interpret things very magically, you know, we we pretend that there's imaginary people and we're talking to them and all this kind of stuff. But there's a certain reality that we have around that at that age, you know, and then and then we mature and we become um, adults and, and, and we have a more kind of formal, operational, logical way of seeing the world and we can be mm -hmm. rational. And, you know, that's important, too. And and these could also sort of be embedded into worldviews, you know, worldviews sort of have, you know, we can think of different cultures that might be orientated more towards a mythical or magical perspective versus cultures that are more rational focused to more traditional focus to sort of postmodern where we kind of say, hey, there's really no truth out there that we can really claim as being objective, that your truth is my truth and it's purely subjective. And then integral sort of could be seen as a stage also in that, that would sort of be able to acknowledge all those particular stages and that they all kind of have a place. And so it's sort of a, a meta view, we could say, that we, we could take around um, how people interpret the world mm -hmm. and, and not negate any of them. Because I think what happens is a lot of people that have a particular worldview just think their worldview is the only correct worldview, and that's the way it is. And you know, yeah. Uh, but Integral tries to say, okay, no, there's there's all these worldviews, and they all have some truth to them, although they may not be all equally valid. And that's why it breaks away from postmodernity because postmodernity doesn't want to make those kind of claims. All right, so that that's great. So that was a lot right there. Yeah. Just a, a quick recap. So. To begin with, we have perspectives. We have an I perspective, we have a we perspective, and we have an it perspective, both in the singular and the plural. Correct. Okay, so that's like, we could say that's, those are the essence of the in integral model are these perspectives, and that all aspects of reality are always composed 
of these different perspectives. Is that right? Right. And then the second key concept to integral theory is what you were describing as stages of development or stages of perspectives. Is that the right way to say it? Well, yeah, they're, they're also perspectives, right? Uh, but there's more of a developmental aspect around it. You know, so Got while it. everybody has an I, we, it perspective, everybody does, not everybody has a perspective of rational consciousness. That would be a stage of development. So if you're a five-year-old child, you're not really thinking of things in terms of from a rational perspective. So there's more of a verticality around that. And, that's, and, 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 and those, could, those could arise in any of the three big perspectives that you, you brought in. Got it. All right. So, okay. So we have the I, we, and the it, and then we have these stages of development, which are the kind of magical, mythical, mag, magical, mythical. Is that, that was the first one? Yeah. It, like, yeah. and then, and that would be like, say a magical, a, a, a worldview or a culture that has a magical perspective was back in the earliest stages of human development back when we were very maybe shamanistic and like animistic like so the trees had their own we we saw spirits in the trees we saw plants as as really having a kind of all of nature was alive with spirit right, right. that the world, the world was enchanted in, in everything the world was enchanted yes all right so that's really helpful. So that's like the first stage of the development. And then the next stage you described again was which one exactly? Well, I, it probably would be mythical. You know, mythical would be sort of we all and, you know, myths, we still we're still attra attracted to myths. I mean, they they're they're just more narratives and stories that are kind of could be seen almost as universal. But the thing is, if they're taking if they're taken literally, you know, and, and this is a perfect example of like people that fall into more of a traditional or I would say not traditional, but probably a more mythical religious orientation. The stories that they would find in the uh, Bible or the Quran, they would take them very literally. Yes, and they would not metaphorically. Not metaphorically. Yeah. So while there is usefulness to that and we still use them today. Right. And, and, and we still value that. We don't necessarily, if we're coming from a more of a, a rational, postmodern kind of perspective, we probably wouldn't take those things as literal. We would probably say, well, there, there's something there that a message that's trying to be conveyed in that story, but we can't say for 100% certainty that that actually happened in history. That's great. So that stage in the human story in the story of human development, that kind of emerged, what, like 3,000 years ago with the whole 2,500 years ago with the birth of like Christianity and Buddhism and that th what they call the axial age. Is that kind of accurate when that, when we started to inhabit that worldview? Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's, it's clean to say it's just happened in the axial period because I mean, even Prior to that, there was some mythology, but I would say that that was certainly a, a seminal point in history where, where definitely a lot of things emerged in regards to religion. Yeah. Okay, got it. So we, we'll say that's the second. And everyone, we're generalizing here, of course, to help right. just give shape to this theory in everyone's imagination yeah. because we can't really draw a diagram for you. So we're, we're making these generalizations and know as just to understand, like as Ted was saying, the reality of it is a lot more nuanced, but we're painting broad strokes so we can create a sense of basic framework for understanding. Exactly. 
Okay, and what's the next stage after that mythical traditional stage? Yeah, traditional stage, and the traditional stage would be something that would be, I think, when nation states kind of came into existence more. Mm. It sort of, you know, allowed for a more ethnocentric perspective where people took pride from what particular. Uh, it doesn't even have to be nation states. I mean, it could be a tribe, you know, that you belong to that you you valued very strongly. And you took pride in that. Certainly when the nation state came into existence, you know, there was the aspect of being patriotic around that. Having a particular valuing and honoring a particular group and uh, also a set of cultural beliefs and artifacts that might go along with that. Like the flag or like. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and religion also probably develops a little bit more at this stage, but it's still very much rooted in kind of the belief that, you know, my religion is definitely the best religion. Mm-hmm. And we still very much, even in this country, are, you know, very much rooted in the traditional model. You know, that's very much a big part of our culture here. Okay, cool. Sorry. So we've done magical, mythical, traditional. And everyone, one way to also think about this, Ted said this, is this is also the story of humanity's evolving identity. So as we progress through these stages, we tend to identify with the stage that we're talking about during the time when it's predominant. Okay, so after traditional is what? Next would be more of a rational stage. This, you can say, started to develop somewhere maybe around the Renaissance, but really came to its height during the Western Enlightenment period. Uh, in the 17th and 18th century, you know, with Locke and Hume and a lot of these people that started to say, you know, there there had to be reason was relevant and we needed to embark in the world using a rational approach to how we created civilization. And, you know, laws came out of this. Human rights started to come out of this, you know, where, mm-hmm. where we started to look at issues of justice more fairly, because we have to remember, I mean, for good bulk of the period, I mean, uh, of the ages, you know, humans were treated like slaves for the majority of people. And while slavery obviously still existed in this time, you know, even in our country, there was at least a consciousness that was coming out that something wasn't right about this, that in the eyes of God, we were all seen as equal. And of course, the scientific method came out of this. This was something that was starting to be teased out with the scholastics through the Middle Ages, but kind of came to its fruition around the Western Enlightenment period. And it's the idea that, you know, we can sort of disembed ourselves from the scientific method to really try to look at things as objectively as possible to help progress and advance our research or our creative developments in culture. Yeah. So this is obviously a big part of what we still sit with today. And the scientific worldview is very much still prevalent. Also, I'll add uh, markets came into this, you know, the idea of capitalism and free markets and, Mm. and, and being more sort of achievement oriented, you know, that we, you know, want to kind of better ourselves as people and achieve some kind of, standard in life. And this sort of combined with the idea of liberty and freedom and so forth allowed people to kind of flourish in the world and use their ingenuity and hard work and creativity to actually achieve some kind of value that they could exchange to other people and get something in return. So a lot went into this worldview, you know, and it it developed over 
many, many centuries. But I would say kind of the fruits of it came more around the time that the Western Enlightenment came into effect. And then, of course, the birth of this country uh, was a big part of that also. Yeah. What's next? Uh, Next would be sort of seen as postmodern development. And postmodern is seen as there was a sense that we really couldn't have any truth claims around reality and that some of those truth claims were actually damaging, that they were keeping particular groups down. They weren't maybe inclusive enough. And it really started around the time of Nietzsche. He was sort of the first philosopher that Mm -hmm. started to really say, well, I mean, his big claim was God is dead, and he really berated Christianity. And he felt that there was a spirit of man from a secular perspective that needed to overcome all these structures that had been created in civilization and that they held us back. And through sort of the the postmodern consciousness, you know, there were sort of this establishment of more of a world-centric look at the world where, well, I can't really say my country is the best country or, you know, I can't really say that my group is the best group. What about the rights of this group? You know, they seem to be kept down. So, you know, out of that, we obviously had the civil rights movement, which was a big factor uh, in the 20th century in this country. We started to take more of a bigger perspective around our ecology. So environmental consciousness came into effect during this time. Uh, more global human rights, the United Nations came into effect. Uh, Gandhi, Martin Luther King. Sure. All those, all those uh, thought leaders that we, we admire from, from the last century. Ted, did you see the final episode of Mad Men? <laughs> I'm actually, I, I'm actually going through Mad Men right now. I'm a little bit behind. Oh, uh, all right. So, so I, don't tell I, me about it. But I, I'm curious. Yeah, we'll talk about it when I get there. I will just say that this is not a spoiler for those Mad Men fans who are out there. If you've seen the last episode, then you kind of know this transition that Ted's talking about right now into postmodernity. It's really beautifully reflected in that last episode i won't say anything more but uh, i appreciate that yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah so this is really good sorry i interrupted you no no that's fine so i mean post-modernity while there's a lot of oh i'm sorry ted before you go on just if you can pause what you're about to say when you said truth claims can you just clarify for everyone what a truth claim is you did give some examples, but if you could just make it clear, it's like what a truth claim is and what an example of a truth claim is. Well, a truth claim is something that we may not even, you know, be aware of truth claims because we're so sort of embedded in it. But, you know, for instance, you know, you kind of grow up in a particular culture and you're told that this is the way things are supposed to be and you just accept it. You know, you just kind of say, oh, OK, this is the way things are supposed to be and there, there must be some truth to it. And therefore, you kind of take it as objective reality. And postmodernity started to find cracks in all these truth claims around the fact that there is no objective truths. You know, that what one culture says and another culture says does not make one better than the other. So, you know, post postmodernity would say that, you know, the shamanic person living in their indigenous culture kind of allowing themselves to live in this primitive landscape and not necessarily strive for anything greater than just their basic subsistence needs is no better or no worse than the capitalists, you know, who's just, you know, striving to acquire and generate wealth and trying to constantly improve their relationship to the world as far as what kind of value they can contribute to it. So mm-hmm. it's essentially saying that my truth is not better than your truth. 
Got it. But, the, it, but there's it, an irony to that, though. There, let me just say one thing about that. There's an irony to that because by saying that, you're actually making a truth claim. Yes. It's called the performative contradiction. Very good, yes. Which means it actually is just, it's a truth claim, but it's also performative contradiction means it actually doesn't make sense. Right. Basically, yeah. Yep. It sounds good, but in fact, you're doing the thing that you're saying you can't do. Right. And truthfully, I don't know how many people engage in the world not saying that some truths are higher than other truths. I mean, I think in reality... Yeah, we all do. Yeah. As far as how we live our lives, I think we all value some things more than other things. And, and therefore, totally. we're, we're kind of acknowledging that there are some deeper truths. And part of what the postmodern finding the cracks, as you said, in these truth claims was looking at a lot of the metastructures that tended to govern and dictate the order of society. And they started to see, wait a second, there's some real flaws in this. And a lot of people are being profoundly marginalized by these so-called truths. And in fact, if it's really true that we're all equal, then these truth claims don't hold up. In fact, there's just these profound biases that always tend to bias the powerful. And so postmodern response was, start, it was a, also a reaction to the power structures that were, you know, surrounded those truth claims and saw that those truth claims often were, were there to serve the concentration of power in the hands of a few. Is that, would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I think, you know, that if you ever read like uh, Michel Foucault, you know, his whole philosophy was around that, that power structures were embedded in everything. I mean, that's a, probably a very, what I would call intense sort of the postmodern approach. I don't, yeah. I don't necessarily believe that, you know, like, for instance, you know, people will make claims like religions were kind of developed to control man, you know, like there was this grand right. conspiracy, some power structure developed of these elite people who decided to say, let's create a religion so we can kind of control everyone and, and have it, power right. over them. I, I think it, it's attributing motivation where maybe there wasn't in, yes. in the way that, yeah, I see. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Did we cover sufficiently that? stage or, or was there more or was there a little bit more you want to say about that yeah i mean i i mean i'll just say post-modernity is i i think i was saying that while it contributed a lot of valuable things to to society and culture it's also probably one of the most difficult and dangerous stages to be at because it really becomes sort of nihilistic and alienating in the sense that you can't really ground yourself anywhere and you just end up becoming stuck with a particular postmodern orientation to life. And that's one of the problems where I think we're at in culture that we probably are at this place where we're having a difficult time making sense of where meaning and purpose comes from. And I attribute a lot of that through sort of the kind of as a byproduct of postmodernity. And I think it's sort of a, a dangerous way to approach one's life. I, I think it's very limiting. And I think that the issue is we can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. So we can't go back to tradition, you know, and, <laughs> and value some of those religions maybe to the way that we, we our predecessors did, because now we, we, we know too much, we're too sophisticated. But there there is a way that I think we need to re-inhabit some of those belief systems. And I, I guess this is a segue to integral because integral, I think, attempts that. I think integral says, okay, all these belief systems have some value to them. Can we tease out and pull some of the, the positive 
beliefs around some of these world systems and reorientate them into sort of a meta system. And I think that's sort of the idea of integral. And I, I, I can't really say integral is a, we don't even know if integral is really a stage of development that is going to sort of take hold in our culture. And this is just my opinion. I, I think right now we can only say it's a theory. I, I can't say for 100% certainty that this is the next stage of development that we're moving into. But I think there's something like it, even if it's not integral, that will have to emerge if we are to kind of break out of the postmodern worldview. If there is truly a next stage of consciousness that is going to come into the world. And I think integral is at least a good attempt at that because it really tries to at least look at all the prior worldviews and it tries to see what is the good, the beautiful and the true that can be pulled from from those worldviews and be inhabited in today's world. So I think that's very helpful what you just said. So like for me, I know one very helpful gift of the integral worldview was helping me kind of lift up out of that postmodern mode of just deconstructing everything and finding, you know, really finding fault with everything and deconstructing the truth claims of everything. And then finding myself, as you said, in a place where suddenly it was like, if nothing's higher than anything else, where do I really, where do I ground myself? How do I say that X, Y, or Z is the most important thing to me and really get behind it because I can see that there's a truth in that that's larger than me. And, you know, I know for myself, having, you know, studied in the humanities and studied literature intensively and uh, literary criticism, found myself in, in this place that you described by the end of that education, having deconstructed all the kind of structures of meaning around me and finding myself in a place of profound existential angst and isolation. You know, meditation in the end ended up being a very powerful vehicle for helping me discover something in myself, a deeper sense of meaning and source of meaning. But Integral, yeah, I think, well, sorry. well, yeah, well, I want to hear what you have to say, but integral, I think, helped me then also find a perspective, not just an experience and a, a point of access, but a perspective that helped me begin to kind of re-embrace a lot of the structures which I had previously deconstructed and be like, say, oh, wait a second, it's not all bad. You know, there's value in this whole human story and everything we've been through humanity. There have been all these beautiful things that we've developed and you shouldn't throw, I can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. I need to learn how to like, in a certain way, embrace, integrate integral theory, all the really valuable parts of what we've developed in myself. And I I need, that takes effort. Yeah, no, that's great. I'm glad you brought that in a little bit because I was going to say that Meditation doesn't, in, by itself, doesn't necessarily give you meaning and purpose. It, 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 because yeah. there is, yeah, I mean, there's an experiential quality to it where it can sort of, you, you can start to intuit that there's more to reality than you assume. And that can probably give you some sense of something deeper about reality. But it's funny, meditation, you still are going to interpret your experiences through whatever structure of interpretation you're coming through. So somebody that's postmodern, and, you know, I know this from being around a lot of Buddhist communities. I would say, you know, at least here in the West, a lot of Buddhists tend to be very postmodern. 
even though they have these deeper states of experience through their meditation practice, the way they're interpreting those states are still through their worldview. It doesn't necessarily change. And, you know, I've had discussions with people in various sanghas and, you know, who've had very strong and profound meditation experiences and are, are very deep and stabilized in their practice. But they really can't talk about sort of the meaning to life still. Or what they'll do is they'll refer more to the traditional model, you know, that comes out of Tibet or something like that, which is fine, you know, if that's what they choose to do. But if they're interpreting it through their own particular culture, it's not like they can really say that much about, you know, those deeper questions. I think that Socrates was trying to answer, you know, who are we, why we're here and, you know, how do we live a good life? I think that those things have to come through some kind of narrative. Yeah. And so there still has to be a good story, you know, that we need to sort of really feel aligned with. And the postmodern story probably isn't going to be enough. That's an interesting point now for us to, I think, you've kind of laid out for us a sense of a basic sort of scaffolding of integral theory. Would you say that's right up until this point? Sure. Just I mean, we very... could tease out a lot of other things. And I don't know if you want me to get into states because that might tie a little bit into meditation practice, but yeah. I'd love for you to speak about states and then kind of let's talk about like, why are we even doing this interview? Why is it relevant for someone who's learning meditation? What, you know, how can the integral perspective be useful to you, the listener? I think if we can speak to that a little bit, like how is this, how does one begin to apply this perspective in life, in work, in kind of relationship, even briefly touching on and, and suggesting kind of some of the relevance of this perspective, I, I think that'd be helpful. Yeah, I think, you know, it's good to keep in mind that integral theory is a map. I mean, Ken didn't come up with this line. I forgot the philosopher that did, but um it was said one time, well, the map is not the territory. So yes. we, we need to keep that in mind, you know, that somehow, even though this map is very useful and there's probably a lot of value that comes from it, that everybody's experience may be a little bit different in what will come up as they develop into their practice. And it may not necessarily lay out as neatly as sort of this map kind of lays things out. But I think it's good to go into anything. I mean, and this, and traditions obviously offer this too. You want to have some kind of structure that you're going into when you're meditating. To have a good map will make things easier for you so you don't have to kind of recreate the wheel. And so you can sort of have a way to orientate, at least with integral theory, you can orientate these particular generalizations of other schools of thought. So it kind of puts things in place. So if you feel conflicted about something, you know, like between a couple worldviews that you might be shifting back and forth between or you're, you know, interacting with people that have worldviews that are different than yours, you might be able to kind of orientate that in some way. So I think it it provides mo more coherence for you. And I think that's that helps, you know, so you don't necessarily feel disjointed in the way that you're approaching your practice. You can kind of yes. see everything has its place. And I think in that regard, integral theory is very helpful. Nice. But with that being said, you know, so how, how else can medita uh, integral theory help with meditation? While we have these stages of development that we talked about, these particular worldviews and so forth that we all go through, you know, keep in mind that these structures of interpretation don't change quickly for most people. They tend to be pretty lodged and in, in individuals and can pretty much be their perspective for their entire lifetime. So they and there's no, you're, and that's not a value judgment. That's not, we're not saying that's right, that's wrong. Yeah. Exactly. This is, we're just talking about like, well, 
trees have a certain rhythm or cycle of life, so do so does a human in terms of what defines their perspective have a certain rhythm and and they may just this life because I'm in a culture that's modern I will probably just have a predominantly modern perspective most of my life. It's not a value judgment. Just exactly. make that clear. Exactly. It's yeah. A, it's natural. Right. So I mean these stages tend to be a little more permanent in in one's orientation to life, you know, although you can certainly move through stages in life and 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 certainly practices like meditation will help with that, but it doesn't necessarily happen quickly. States happen more quickly and states are available to everyone at any given moment. So states are basically really just experience, you know, uh, that we we have and they can be structured in, you know, particular ways. There's obviously three what they call the three great natural states that we all go through every day pretty much is uh, the waking state. Then there's the dream state, you know, that we may go through. We may not always remember our dreams, but most of us dream every night. And then there's uh, the deep dreamless state, you know, where, you know, is kind of seen as sort of the empty void where we get a good night's sleep of no rapid eye movement. And, you know, that's always uh, a good thing, right? Um, So within those three great natural states. There are, there are other many states that can happen, right? There's the emotional states, you know, we, we feel angry, we feel happy, we feel sad. There's also states of peak experiences we may have, you know, you go hiking on a day and you get to the top of a mountain and you see this grand vista looking at your, you know, and you just, you marvel at the beauty of nature and bow down to it. And you just have this incredible sense of gratitude and, and that's sort of a, a peak experience, you know, that you might have in that moment. And it comes and goes, right? And then you're hiking back down the mountain and feeling you always feel. Um, yeah. And then there's also altered states for, for people that have ever done psychedelics or ethnogens. Obviously, have experienced that. And for some people, those have been very profound. I mean, they've been life-changing. When I was in college, I took mushrooms at a certain point, psilocybin mushrooms. That opened the doors for me. I mean, in in some dramatic ways. I think that in some ways just catapulted me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, the I, path where... I've heard that from a lot of people that have taken different kinds of psychedelics or ethnogens and have said how, how those experiences have really, I guess, facilitated their spiritual trajectory. Um, yeah. I, I never, it was a gateway. Yeah. Totally a gateway. I, I, I never dabbled in that. But the thing to keep in mind too is those experiences, while they can be very profound and, and life changing, they're also temporary. And very rarely do people find any ability to stabilize any of that. And then also keep in mind, some people have had some bad experiences with, with those things. And, and Exactly. Um, right. So it's, you know, it's not necessarily, I can't really say I'm not, I don't have a lot of experience with it, but I'm not necessarily someone who kind of advocates for it either because I, I've known a few people that have had some bad experiences with it. And, uh, I tend to think that if you can take an approach that is less abrasive, I guess, for lack of a better word, like meditation, it's probably, yeah, exactly. probably a better way to go, you know, and we're and right on point here. Help stabilize things more too, you know, which yeah. is the important thing. You know? So, I mean, just getting back into this, you know, these state experiences, can also be trained. So meditation is part of that, right? So we can have these experiences and they can just happen to us, right? Uh, They can be very spontaneous. But there's also the ability to train state experiences. And this is one of the marvelous gifts of meditation, that meditation allows us to go through different state practices. And uh, getting back to my teacher, Daniel P. Brown, this is one of his big contributions because he 
sort of studied a lot of the traditions and realized that they actually pointed to the, the sort of state model that uh, people would go through in their experience of meditation, that you don't just sit in a cushion and get it all at once. I mean, there's probably some people who are extremely gifted and, and have had that ability. But for most of us, that's not the case. You know, you kind of start off with your ordinary mind, you know, and you're kind of very much locked into the sensory motor world. And, you know, gross is usually called, this is sort of the, the state realm that this is called. And, and you're very much locked into your thoughts and emotions. And uh, there's very little distance that you might have from those experiences. But this is mostly where m most of us are operating out of before we, we start to meditate. And it's pretty much the ordinary mind and the culture at large. It, this is probably a state that they, they recognize the most uh, yeah. in their experience. Uh, they don't even probably see it as a state because they just see it as their mind. You know, there's the, they, this is just something that the only thing that they know, you know, unless they've been fortunate to have maybe some some peak experiences and things of that nature in their life. Yeah. But as you meditate, you can get more into what we call the subtle state, um, which is really it goes beyond the sensory motor world, you know, where you start to really see thoughts and emotions more for what they are, you know, that they don't necessarily have this inherent existence that is real you know that there there's a certain you know, buddhists like to use the term emptiness i'm not particularly fond of that word because i think people that haven't had the practice sort of misinterpret what that means but it's more like there those those things are, are are just objects of manifestation that don't necessarily have any inherent reality and if we can see through that, we can start to see that hmm, the, the qualities of what we thought those impressions were, were, were not what, what they actually are. You know, we can actually start to see more that they have an energetic quality about them. We might start to feel some intuitive impressions around these things. We might have images that come about. And what that does is sort of desolidifies a lot of these things, you know, that we, mm. we start to feel more freedom and space around that. And the subtle state, there, there's many experiences that can happen with that. There's a lot to the subtle state. And there's people that are done a lot of experiments with this, you know, through, you know, the use of psychedelics or, or different kinds of practices. People even talked about having experiences of other spirits and uh, other realms of existence. And, and, and there's a lot there, you know, so, and not everybody's going to have those experiences. So you can't really necessarily go by everybody else's experience. But if you're trained in a particular way in meditation, there are particular experiences or markers that you can actually see and have that point you, that you point out to you that you're at least moving in the right direction as far as yeah. seeing what those impressions are. I, I guess I could go on a lot about the subtle state, but I, I think, you know, that's a pretty good over overview of it. And then, yeah. and then there's the state where we would call more causal and causal is sort of the, this is where um, things become interesting because we actually do get a taste of our, our nature. It's sort of this aspect of reality where things become formless, things become empty, things may become blissful. It could be a complete opening to the existence of, who you are, and where everything arises from. Would you say, Ted, it is in this causal realm that you begin to experience a sense of unity with all that is, a kind of sense of profound and fundamental interconnection? Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
And again, it may be momentary. It may not necessarily stick. And I, and I also want to say one other thing that all these states that we're talking about that if you're training in meditation, you know, and you're having these uh, training for these state experiences of meditation, either in the gross, subtle or causal state, you can actually have those state experiences in your waking state, in your dream state and your your deep dreamless state. So for instance, mm. the perfect example is, you know, somebody that is dreaming, maybe we've all experienced a lucid dream. So a lucid dream for people that don't know is a dream where you're sort of aware that you're in a dream. You know, it's interesting. I had these experiences when I was kind of a younger uh, child. I, I they would just happen spontaneously. And I always thought they were fascinating, you know, you're you're in a dream, but yeah. you actually know that you're in that dream you're aware of being in the dream. That's amazing. And and it is amazing. And, and you know, there's obviously yogis that uh, will actually train, you know, for, for these particular, you know, it's called like dream yoga and things of that sort. And, and essentially what, what, it, what it really means is awareness is starting to creep in into your natural states. So while, you know, you're probably, you know, meditating formally on a cushion and you're training for these, these particular gross, subtle, causal states, as you become more proficient at it and, and things become more natural around having those state experiences, they can start to creep in into your other natural states. So people that have gotten to the point where they've mastered a lot of this, they can technically always be sort of awake to whatever experience they're having. So whether they're awake whether they're dreaming or whether they're in a deep dreamless state, they're always aware that they're in those natural states. Hmm. That's a very, very high it's level. It's a very high level. Attainment. Yes. And, uh, you know, that's not my experience, you know. Um, Me neither. I, I've had experiences of lucid dreaming that have creeped up again a little bit more in my later life. I think that's helped through meditation practice. But generally, you know, when I'm sleeping, I'm sleeping. You know? <laughs> yeah. And everyone... I think it was episode 21, we interviewed meditation teacher Jeff Carrera, and he describes one of those experiences where, as he described it, he lost the capacity to become unconscious mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. where he was just simply in a wakeful state. And actually, the states he described perfectly corresponded to what you described as the three great natural states. Sure. Through, he described how he was just... He was always awake and there was a continuity there from when he was like his body was awake to then when his body was asleep and then his mind would be dreaming and but he would be aware of that dreaming and then there would just be blackness and he'd be aware, he'd be aware of himself in that blackness right, and the right. mind would start dreaming again and then he'd wake up. Yeah, that's that's great. And you know, one thing to keep in mind while these states are very they're they're great markers, you know, and, and I think they really help someone along in their practice to sort of see that they're actually making improvements in their meditative abilities. They also can be traps and they can be serious traps. It's really easy to kind of get stuck in these state experiences and, and because they sometimes they can be very glorious, very profound, very enjoyable there could be a mystical component around them. And if you start to get too attached to these states, getting back to what I said earlier, it could be one of these places that you get stuck. You know, it, it could be like, yeah. again, you're not really completely seeing things for what they are. You're, you're, you're starting to really get too captivated by 
these experiences to the point where you are not allowing yourself to completely let go and become more fully liberated into your true nature. So this is this is pretty common, and uh, I, and I think it's that, just one thing yeah. to keep in mind. I'm really glad you said it, and I, I would just like to underscore what you said because everyone is tantalizing as it is to hear about these stories. It's not really the point of meditation. Like state experiences can be a reflection of progress on the path, and they they tend to always be very inspiring and motivating. However, that's not what me- meditation isn't an experience, and and that's I feel like what you're drawing out here. Right. It's always important to remember meditation can catalyze different state experiences, but meditation itself is the practice ultimately of just letting go. Right. As you said, again and again and again. And that can give rise to some amazing experiences, but the experiences themselves are really not the point. I know it's just like, I feel like that's a lesson none of us, that we can never learn enough or hear enough because they're wonderful ecstatic experiences. Of course, it's very natural to want them again, but it's not, it's really not the point of meditation. Yeah. And this is one of the things, you know, I mean, I know you had talked about your experience when you um, took mushrooms back in college and had this amazing experience and it became sort of a catalyst for you to go deeper into your spiritual practice. Um, right. You know, I know with my teacher, Daniel P. Brown, he and, you know, he's a product of the, the 60s generation and he had his share of drug experiences. And right. uh, he's seen a lot of people, too, you know, that have kind of gone through taking a lot of different types of psychedelics. And he says one of the things that he finds to be an outcome, if people get too caught up in that, they tend to really be too drawn to state experiences. And and it actually ends up becoming a diminishing return in their meditation practice. So Mm. he actually doesn't encourage people to do that. Or if you're going to do it, just very limited, you know, to an extent. So it it tends to be a pretty common uh, sticking point. And like you said, it's not it's not the point. To meditation, the point of meditation is to to really awaken the mind and see yourself for who you are. And I think that ultimately, if people don't know that, if they don't have a good teacher, uh, if they don't study in a particular tradition, I, I think a lot of people will get to that point where they'll start to have these experiences and and feel good about themselves. But again, it's yourself; it's your narrative self that you're still kind of attracted to that's saying, oh, great, I'm having this experience. And the whole point of meditation, like you said, is to have no experience. So it's just, it's really something I think worth stressing. Yeah, absolutely. Just to clarify, because you said the point is to have no experience. It, it's it's not that you shouldn't have any particular experiences. It's just, you need to keep moving. Right, you know, right. And not, not get stuck in any particular experience experience exactly yeah yeah and and also i mean when i say no experience i also want to be careful on how i say that because i i think sometimes people think well what is the ultimate experience is it just this this void of nothingness you know that means nothing you know because i mean you can actually have that experience of of kind of like this void nothingness and and that's not that's not what we're speaking about either the thing is it's very hard to articulate it it's but but you have you have to use words and 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 so yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So beyond causal, 
do we go to non-dual or what, what's after causal state? Yeah, so I mean, uh, technically the causal state, while you're, you're, you're kind of having an orientation, you know, of seeing the empty arising of everything from the all-pervasive ground of being, it's still kind of from a witness perspective, meaning that there's still some aspect of your own personal self that is sort of seeing this experience. And in order to have the full experience of true nature, that has to drop away. And it's almost like a very subtle, very subtle sheath of oneself that can sort of feel like, you know, yeah, this is it. But the fact is that you're, you're thinking in those terms, like I'm having, again, an experience means that there's something there that is still not completely been negated, you know, that there's still something that's witnessing all experience. And when that drops away, that would be what we would construe as non-duality. And in non-duality, sort of all these, the gross, subtle, and causal can sort of arise together. It becomes like now you're seeing reality for what it is, and everything that is arising is arising as such. Would you say non-dual so it's no perspective in particular is it a perspectival is it is it without right yeah so that would be when everything we're talking about in regards to you know stages and so forth it's always a, a point of view this would be what we would just call a view the view and yes but at the same time, keep in mind, even someone sort of in a non-dual and as someone who's been able to stabilize a non-dual orientation, there is still going to be probably a structure of interpretation. It's not like you're still a human body. You're still a body that's engaging in the world and you're going to engage in the world based on whatever those deep structures of how the way you interpret the world as such. So while maybe some of the surface structures, as far as your own particular narrative of how you saw yourself drop away, you know, and you're freed from that, there's still some deep structures that, that exist. And this is the thing that's interesting because, I mean, we, you know, we don't see a Tibetan Buddhist Lama become a Christian missionary, you know, when they achieve enlightenment. Yeah. They stay in their particular culture and they still continue along with all the cultural artifacts that they've been orientated to and their philosophical perspective around the teachings and the dharma they don't change they they're still there and so there are these deeper structures that we can't negate and again this gets back more to what we were talking about with stages of development that you can have non-dual at any particular stage of development and people that are coming from more a traditional perspective will interpret that non-duality as sort of Christ consciousness uh, if they're a Christian. Mm -hmm. That's just because we're still human bodies, you know, that have to engage in the world. So even though, you know, there's this absolute perspective, there's still a relative world that we are engaging in. Now we may, if you're lucky enough to stabilize non-duality, you may see it as all one thing, but you still have a body that has to work it yourself into the world and orientate itself in some particular way. Yeah. You're still a human being. You still have a mind. Exactly. You still have all the colors and conditions that make up Ted is Ted and Morgan is Morgan. That, that it's not like all of that has disappeared. Yeah. It's still my, my personality is still intact, but from within it, 
there's a fundamental freedom from those original causes, what in Buddhism they call causes and conditions, the things that have compelled a lot of my reactive patterned behavior in response to life. There's a primary freedom now in relationship to all that. And and this is one of the things that also integral theory kind of contributes because it says, okay, you may have an orientation to uh, your non-dual nature, but there's still probably other aspects of yourself that are not cleaned up. So you, you can still be screwed up in a certain way. You know, I, I, I think that, yeah. know, we have this idea that, you this know, is great. Someone can be, you know, obviously we have a tradition of kind of revering gurus that come from the East and we think that they're these perfect individuals and that everything that they say is profound and wise and true. And it's not necessarily the case. I mean, human beings are much more complex than that. So there are these deeper structures in regards to our personality, our makeup, the way we're wired that don't necessarily get cleaned up entirely through meditation. Meditation can help with a lot of that stuff, but there still could be some disassociation. There could still be some areas in your life that you're just not that well developed in. Obviously, we're not all great at everything. You know, we all have certain limitations and certain capacities yeah, it, and that doesn't, doesn't change, mean, you know? That, yeah. So yeah. that's still there. And, and, and the fact is, is if, you know, somebody is lousy at relationships and they are really good at meditation, and they've kind of, you know, mastered, you know, their particular path in meditation, they're probably still going to come out of that and be loud at relationships unless they've done some yeah. work in that area. We're getting towards wrapping up the interview here, but this is such an important point. And I'd love to linger on it just a little bit longer because I feel like the basic point here is the idea of perfection is really not helpful to any of us. Right. And it's an idea that has a very powerful grip on a lot of us for the reasons you said, you know, we're, we're oriented towards achievement authority and we superimpose that on these tend to be these gurus and these ideas of perfection and perfect purity and whatnot. And it's just not true. You know, the idea of a perfect human being has not served humanity and it doesn't really correspond with the fact that, that we seem to be an evolving universe. We seem to be in a process that's unfolding and that's all of us growth is something that unfolds and never really ends. And, you know, it can be very dangerous and, and has caused a lot of harm, this idea of thinking that I can perfect myself or that, you know, the Dalai Lama's perfect. Everyone's got shadows and areas of themselves they need to work on. It's just that idea of perfection is just, is it not that you don't want to strive for excellence, but the, the idea of perfection is it's a static idea that I don't think is really helpful. Right. I, I totally agree. And, and, and there's actually something beautiful about that, too, because I, I just want to point out, because if you think about it, if we had this one perfect model of what a human being should be, to me, that would also be very limiting. You know, the fact is, is that there's seven billion people on this planet and we all have a particular gift and potential in what we're given in this world. And that, to me, allows a polarity of potential gifts yeah. that could be expressed and flourished in the world and shown up in different ways. So it's not to say that, you know, one person who's a, a saint and one person that's a yogi and one person that's a soldier, that any of those particular models are more perfect than any other. I mean, it, it's, it's almost like we need all those different functions in the world. And therefore, yeah. that model of perfection would be unrealistic to show up as one individual that God wants to express 
himself, herself in many different ways. There's something really perfect in that. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. And, and that idea, it's a kind of absolutism that, you know, we apply to people, but also particular traditions and paths that assert themselves as the one true and right path. You know, that you can see that idea at work in those manifestations and the damage that that has caused. Right. And full disclosure, it's very simple to adopt this idea and not even know it. Having lived in an abusive power hierarchy in a spiritual community for many years, I fully had adopted that perspective un- in certain ways unknowingly, but then looking back and say, yeah, absolutely. I really believed I had the one true right way. And my teacher was really the one true right teacher. And I'm a very postmodern guy. And I, you know, trained in a lot of ways to deconstruct this idea, but still it's a powerful current in human consciousness to apply this idea of perfection in, in different ways. Yeah, and I, I, I think we, as human beings, we all need exemplars, and there's nothing wrong with having Absolutely. having models. I think the thing that gets tricky is that we sort of are too rigidly lock ourselves to one particular um, model. And, and yeah. you know, I think that we need to be aware of what gifts and capacities that we have to offer the world and be true to that. That's awesome. Well, two things. Are there any final words you want to say about integral theory? For anyone who's interested in learning more about it, could you recommend a few resources and then also just if there are any I- final ideas that you want to tie up, please, by all means, share. Well, there's a lot out there uh, on integral theory. And obviously, if you Google it, you'll find many things. I, I still, to this day, I think the best resources, Ken Wilber wrote a book, came out, I think, uh, probably somewhere in the early 2000s called uh, A Brief History of Everything. And that's like a 300-page book. It's not too long, and it's done sort of in a dialogue fashion. So it's easy to read because it's very conversant in the way it's written. And I think it teases out integral theory probably better than any other book I've come across. I mean, certainly there, there are other books that you, you know can get into a lot more application, a lot more depth. There's even a couple books that he's put out since that have been more introductory kind of things. But I think that that's like the right place to, you know, kind of get enough depth, but not go too deep and get a good sense of what it's all about. And I, you know, I, I still value it. I, I, but I also kind of over the years have kind of said, okay, you know, I'm, I'm not so rigidly aligned with even that map. Like, I feel like anything out there is, you know, something that we can get maybe too rigidly locked into, you know, and you can, you, yeah. you, you gotta, you know, sort of allow yourself to say, okay, I do believe that there's deeper truths. So I'm not kind of falling back into a postmodern mindset and saying that, oh, you know, that's just his perspective. No, I think integral theory, as far as theories go, is probably one of the better ones out there, but I don't think you want to get too locked into anything either. You know, you want to kind of allow yourself the room to see how this kind of best fits for you and how it relates to your own experience. So I would probably right. say that would be a good resource to start off with if you're into reading. And wonderful. And if you I don't know, as far as any final words, I mean, I I'm not a good meditator. And even though you know, <laughs> I'm 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 definitely a heady person, I'm very intellectual, and I think that serves me in another way that that is very positive. But when it comes to meditation, it probably doesn't serve me so well. So it's been challenging. But I'll just say that, you know, I know there's probably other people that might listen to your show that 
that are also, you know, have, have that disposition. Just, you, yeah. you just have to have the discipline. And I also want to get back to intention. Don't necessarily lock yourself into just a secular perspective around meditation. Like realize that tradition actually brings something into it. You know, that these religions kind of went through a lot over the years. And there's a reason why all these practices and philosophical positions exist. They really still have value even today. So while I think we we do want to sort of reorientate ourselves to something that's more culturally relevant for we where we are, I think we also have to be careful not to dismiss what the wisdom traditions have offered us and see that there might be more to reality than we may think there is. If people want to follow up with you directly is there a way for or a place that people can go to connect with you not really i don't have a website or anything of that nature <laughs> but uh no i mean worries. if you if i offered you my email address you're more than welcome to give that to anyone that reaches out to you and wants to touch base with me great so everyone i will link up in the show notes for this episode a lot of the references we made to i'll put in some links for Daniel P. Brown. I'll put in some links for Ken Wilbur in the book that Ted described and some of the other references we made. And then also, if you are interested in connecting with Ted directly, you can just write to me through the contact form in our website and I'll be happy to connect you. So Ted, this has really been fantastic. Thank you again for coming on the show. Morgan, thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. Awesome. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Ted Saad about integral theory. If you want to follow up on some of the references we talked about today, you can find those in the show notes over at www.onemind.com. That's www.onemind.com. Also, if you enjoy the podcast, you can generate some positive karma and help other meditators discover this show by leaving us a rating and a review over on iTunes. If you're moved by the show, go for it. Leave us a leave us a rating and a review. We're super grateful and we read everything you write. And you can head on over to aboutmeditation.com today and pick up two free 20-minute guided meditations from me, Morgan Dix, just head on over to aboutmeditation.com. Finally, let's end with a quote, and this one is, it only seemed appropriate, from Ken Wilber himself. And he says, A person who is beginning to sense the suffering of life is, at the same time, beginning to awaken to deeper realities truer realities. For suffering smashes to pieces the complacency of our normal fictions about reality and forces us to come alive in a special sense, to see carefully, to feel deeply, to touch ourselves and our worlds in ways we have heretofore avoided.